0: This week on Writers Inc.
1: I'm personally not a fan of the belief that every first draft is crap. I never liked that. I know it's like a lot of people, I think, have drawn a lot of motivation and like comfort from that. And that's that's great. For me, that was never motivating because I would think, well, if I'm just going to write a bad first draft, like. Why am I writing it? Like, tell me how to skip to the part where I read a good first draft. How do I do that? You know? So now I like to, like when I work with writers, I, I really like to show them my first drafts so that they can see like, look, is it a mess? Of course. Like it's a total mess. Are there parts that got cut and never came back? Definitely like full characters, full plot lines. But like, look at the fact that like the first two paragraphs of my first draft are the first two paragraphs of the published book, right? Or like how this particular scene barely changed at all. Like there are these pieces of the first draft that will carry through to the very end. And like, they're like the heart of the story and that's where it's living. And I love thinking of it that way.
0: J.K. Rowling was nearly homeless when she wrote the first Harry Potter book. Stephen King penned Carrie in a small desk wedged between a washer and dryer. James Patterson worked in advertising and famously crafted the Toys R Us theme song long before becoming an author. Join New York Times bestseller J.D. Barker and Indie Powerhouse's Jay Thorne and Zach Bohannon as they pull back the curtain on some of the world's most prolific authors. Where do they start? What is their process? The biggest names in publishing all have origin stories. All have tips and secrets. What does it take to consistently top the bestseller lists and become a household name? Get your notepad out. School's in session. This is Writers Inc.
2: Hey there, it's Christine Daigle.
3: And J.P. Reinflush. And Kevin Tomlinson.
4: Hey, and this is J.D. Barker. Welcome to Writers Inc. So we've got a lot of new faces, voices. I guess nobody's actually watching us other, other than us. But um, so J.P. is back. Christine has been here for a little bit. Kevin, how are you doing, man? I'm good. How are you? Good. It's good to be here. So I guess a lot of people probably know you from draft to digital um, I, I, I know you probably more from listening to Joanna Penn's show and hearing the draft to digital commercial than, yeah. than, than anything. Um, I'm Joanna
3: but, Penn famous is what that amounts to. <laughs> exactly. Uh,
4: and you're also famous for, for traveling the, the States in an RV, and it yeah. looks like you finally parked somewhere.
3: We did. Permanently parked somewhere, yeah. We're, we were doing, for the past uh, two years, we were full-time – uh, van life, uh, just traveling. And that's how we spent our, our pandemic vacation was moving coast to coast and edge to edge in the, in the United States. So now we're, we built a house and we're living in the Austin area now.
4: So when everybody is screaming at us to socially distance you're, you're in a sardine can with the rest of your family. I'm like
3: challenge accepted. (laughs) We will socially distance the hell out of here. And we did, uh, we were in places that, you know, there weren't people around us for maybe two or 300 miles at times. So we, we took that seriously.
4: Does it feel weird to have space now to be able to move around a it little does.
3: bit? It does. It does. I mean, I, you know, my, my writing process and everything hasn't changed at all. Uh, it, you know, it, everything was the same. It's just the way like I have all this space now to pace if I want um, or whatever, you know, it's, it's, it's all mostly backdrop for podcasts at this point. <laughs> <laughs> cool. Well, welcome to the show thank you for
4: having me jp what do we have in the news today
5: yeah so credit to the hot sheet from drain friedman but uh topic number one is book talk trends so we all know tiktok has this wonderful platform and there's actually uh, a pretty big rise in book talk recommendations for books uh, it's actually becoming more popular than traditional book club recommendations so i'm curious on your guys' thoughts on book talk
4: so I, I've, I've been trying alternate forms of advertising for a while. Anybody who's been listening to this show, they, they know that, you know, I've, I've been doing the Facebook thing forever. Um, Amazon ads didn't really work for me because when I really started digging in, I realized that a lot of people were already looking for my book when they went to Amazon. So it's not that they were discovering me through other titles, um, you know, so that wasn't really a, a moneymaker for me. Um, I do a lot of commercials on Hulu. So I actually have a production company that films book ads, um, you know, 15 second and 30 second spots, you know, full on co- t- television commercials. Um, and I'm loving that because I can target, you know, I can literally say, I want women 45 and older that live in Syracuse watching criminal minds. And, and I can do that. You know, Hulu gives you the ability to, to do that. Um, what I am finding with Hulu is that I sell print books through Hulu, not uh, Hulu, not so much eBooks. Um, so it is a different audience. I, I don't know if that means that it's, it's older or not. Um, yeah. with TikTok, I approached this, you know, when it first started getting big, I, I guess about a year ago. Um, I, I knew immediately nobody wanted to see me dancing around in a bikini holding one of my books. Um. Um, So I wasn't going to draw an audience in doing that. Um, So what I ended up doing is I I hired, honestly, Jay's uh, daughter, uh, Jay Thorne's daughter. Um, She scoured. Uh, book talk for me and got me a, a list of book talk influencers. Um, so I created a mailing list right now. It's a little shy of 3000 book talk influencers. Uh, the smallest one has a thousand followers. The largest has a little over 600,000. And I created a company called best to book talk. And every Tuesday we send out a, a list very similar to like a book bub, um, strictly to those influencers of books offered by the publishing companies, uh, that they can get for free to review. Um, so I basically keep the, the book talk influencers in, you know, in, in front of the, the latest title. The nice thing about that is I can sneak my own title in whenever I want to get in front of that audience. Um, so that's how I'm approaching TikTok.
3: What about the rest of you? That is impressive. Uh, you have taken <laughs> that to a level that I did not even dream to take things to, because <laughs> the most I have done uh, with TikTok is I've, I've got someone on staff at Draft Digital who does our TikTok stuff, and that's it. I, I have not participated in BookTok, and it sounds like I should, uh, but it sounds like I'm connected to the right guy if I want to <laughs> if I want start playing around with that. Yeah, I'm like you,
2: Kevin. I haven't made use of it the way that I should. I know I should be making more use of it as an indie author, but I don't love being in front of the camera. I don't mind being behind the microphone, but I don't love being in front of the camera. So that's definitely something that I want to look at expanding
3: uh, what I'm doing. Yeah, I don't mind being in front of the camera. It's just I I guess I haven't paid any attention to TikTok, so I don't really know. Like, I, I know some of what goes on. I see some of what goes on. But I, I don't know what book talk really means in the grand scheme of things. <laughs> like, you know, what am, am I supposed to put it? I will put on the bikini. I have no problem with that. Um, but, yeah, sorry, JP. I, I may have interrupted you.
5: Oh, no, I think I froze for a second.
3: <laughs>
4: what I was just going to mention is TikTok um, is is evolving very quickly. Um, and I think Joanna touched on this, too, where we used to see a life cycle of, you know, five, ten years for this type of thing. You know, they're a couple years in and, and they're a lot more mature than, let's say, Facebook was at that particular level. Um, what I'm noticing is, I, you know, back in college, you know, like everybody was into the alternative bands. You know, it's basically music that nobody else was listening to. And the second those bands hit the mainstream, nobody cared anymore. Um, and I'm kind of getting that vibe from TikTok in a certain way you know like it was the thing you know like anybody you know everybody was all over it they loved the book you know recommendations and things when it was basically not known when it was under the radar uh, but now that it is becoming mainstream now that barnes and noble has an actual book talk section and the publishers are yeah. targeting and it's becoming so commercial um i honestly feel people might move on to, to something else
3: see this is your chance to read kevin thompson before he was cool <laughs> so go check him out go ahead again jp i interrupted you
5: No, more than fine, more than fine. But uh, yeah, that's actually one of the the commentaries from the hot sheet was that, you know, TikTok will reach a saturation point. And I'm pretty sure that at that point, we'll eventually find a new platform. But uh, it was interesting to see some of those sale trends from 2022 and seeing that BookTok drove the lion's share of fiction growth. And most of that was actually from older titles. Um, I find it funny because as a user of TikTok, uh, that's pretty much where I bought all of my 2022 books. Uh, I would see recommendations from there and I would purchase it from TikTok, uh, like looking for that author, looking for those names elsewhere. Um, so I can really see how TikTok, uh, is a really good place to do some research, see what people are doing, and just try to emulate or uh,
3: adhere it to your own work. I can get on board with that. <laughs> i I like it as a, I like the idea of it as a research tool uh, mm-hmm. to to see trends. But yeah, and you can do that without putting on the bikini. I'm mm-hmm. I'm told.
5: It was actually interesting. I saw uh, a couple articles talking about like some of those really popular trends that happen, for example, like the Wednesday Adams dance Uh, Mm. taking a month or two and then reissuing that as like, you know, book talk or something along those lines uh, still keeps the relevancy of that trend. And but it doesn't look as gimmicky as when hopping on it immediately and trying to adhere it to your book related, um, materials. So it's a way of reviving old trends within a couple months or two, uh, just to kind of, um, keep with that flow of TikTok without having to sound super, super, super preachy as a last topic, (laughs) (laughs) uh, that I'll hit, uh, Digital Book World 2023. I thought this was a really interesting article. It was about the future of AI writing and audio. Uh, Mm -hmm. So this conference um, talked about the input of things like chat, GPT, et cetera, and creating content. Um, Even said things about, you know, creating 60,000 words in 20 seconds. Um, But it really focused on the fact that If you rely too heavily on AI without intervention, you can run into some really big issues, uh, not only with plagiarism, but just the fact that the content may be confusing. Um, And then they also discuss things like AI-generated voice audio. Uh, So I'm really curious on your guys' thoughts on where AI is at this moment and if it's something that you are considering in any form uh, in your writing.
2: Well, I have a thought about that, Uh, just because I had a a discussion going back and forth about uh, kids using it in high school for essay writing and the kind of problems that that brings up. And I was just curious, because my son is in high school, is this something he could use (laughs) to cheat on his essays? So they're doing this book and I um, put in the questions that he had to do and the AI spit out this lovely character analysis and it had all the characters wrong Who they were was wrong. (laughs) What they did was wrong. And I'm like, well, that's an F right there. So (laughs) I don't know if it's quite at the point where you can use it for that type, but maybe for idea generation, maybe if you're stuck and you know you need a novel direction to go, that might be a way to use it. But all the times that I've played around with it to see how it actually writes, it's not there yet, in my opinion.
3: Mm No, no.
4: Now, I was going to jump. I'm coming at it from a very weird angle. So I'm having this conversation with a lot of different authors. I'm on the board with the international thriller writers. So I'm talking to that group about it. Um, I've got students done. I'm, I'm mentoring. I've got co Um, I personally, I'm outlining a book right now where I'm, I'm brainstorming with, with James Patterson, a new title, and I've got chat, uh, GPT open on another window, um, mainly because I want to try it. I want to see, you know, what it's capable of doing. If I get stuck on a particular point, can I, Use this to somehow, you know, spur a, a, a thought, something. Um, and what I quickly found is having James Patterson on the phone brainstorming a title with me gives a very unique perspective to that outline. There's creativity happening mm-hmm. there. There's you know just thoughts that completely come out of left field, um, you know just holy shit type moments coming out of this guy's mouth when you brainstorm a, an outline with them. And on the flip side, I've got the screen over here where I could type in the exact same question; it'll throw an answer back to me immediately. But it is nothing more to me than a, a Google search. You know, it's basically yep. regurgitating information that's been done before. Um, and you know, if you're writing a thriller, if you're trying to you know to entice an audience you need something that hasn't been done before so like I have quickly lost like it has no luster to me anymore like it's there it's nice but like at this point it's not able to get it done for me um
3: that being said I have no clue where it's going to be a year from now yeah I've been playing around with it just to basically jar ideas loose or to try something out um what I've been what I've done a lot is I'll ask it to generate something like give me give me you know, some ideas on, you know, give me, give me an idea and it'll throw something at me. And I'm looking at it and thinking, you know, that's, that's the bones, but it's not where I would take that story. And so it's a, it's a spring point for me where I can just start refining that idea. Um, but it does help me get past, I don't typically have this issue, but I mean, it does help me get past, you know where where do i go from you know, the blank page problem you know like yeah. i i want to write something but what is what do i want to write and it does help me kind of leap right past that and at least get moving
4: well let me ask you a question okay you've got the blank page in front of you how how yeah. do you typically deal with that like are you typing in a question then at that point on chat deep gpt and and just kind of reading the responses and hitting refresh and refresh until it gives you something worth pursuing
3: yeah i might say something like you know give me th- it, 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 by the way, it knows us. It knows each of us. Um, or I know it knows me. And I know it knows JD. Uh, but uh, I can say, hey, give me three uh, book descriptions or synopses of Kevin Tomlinson Thriller. And it will pop up with, you know, something pretty similar to what I've already written. Uh, but it'll inevitably latch on to something from a trope or something from the thriller world, probably, uh, that I hadn't quite covered or thought about. Uh, and I'll I'll say, well, that's cliche, but I could take that, flip it on its ear and do something with it. And so it gets, it kind of gets me excited. It's, 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 it's that I don't have that anymore uh, where I have someone I could bounce ideas off of, Um you know, I used to have lots of people around me all the time, but these days I'm kind of in this room, you know, 18 hours a day, uh, by myself mostly. And so I don't really have people I can just sort of springboard ideas with. So it's become that for me. It's a, it's a like quick and easy way for me to just say, what would you do say about this? And it'll say that and I'll say, that's correct, but wrong. And I'll do something entirely different, sort of the, uh, Dr. House method, you know? If you know Mm -hmm. what I'm talking about,
4: (laughs) I I love house. Yeah.
5: I found with like long form, it becomes astoundingly average or like confused. But when you're talking about like the concepts of idea generation, or if you're very specific about like, hey, I like this paragraph of my bio, but I want you to shorten it to a couple sentences with SEO, like, you can kind of make a pretty good bio from that with just a couple edits but then that way you're using a tool that can recognize pieces that maybe you don't need to without you know additional research i find those pieces interesting where you you kind of play with it on these little short form um, bits, uh, but definitely not long form for me.
2: Yeah. And just, I wanted to add that, um, in trying things, we tried to get it to write Terry Pratchett and it, it actually nailed the style pretty good. Uh, the only problem was it wasn't funny, so it didn't really nail it at all. Yeah.
4: <laughs> let, let me ask y'all one question just to wrap this up. So like, I, I know it knows who I am. And like I can put something in there in the style of JD Barker and it'll spit something back out. Kevin mentioned he's in there too. Um, are you comfortable with that? Because personally I'm not, um, and I've already ins- instructed my agent to include language on my, my contracts moving forward to not allow any type of AI generated material based on my voice, um, you know, now or in the future. Um, like, I, I want to make sure that's part of my contract so my kids aren't dealing with it. Um, but I, I I personally don't think I want to be in there.
3: I, I've been very comfortable with it, uh, both on the writing side and on the art side, because my, the way I've thought of it is it's a little like if you were a, uh, an art student or a a writing student, you know, you would train by mimicking others. And, um, you know, I, my early stuff was all written in, in a style similar to to some of the authors I loved. I know that what we want to avoid is the plagiarism, right? Or we Mm -hmm. want to avoid also, um, this identity theft in a way, like we don't want them claiming that this was written by JD Barker or Kevin Tomlinson or whatever. Uh, but I don't, I don't really see that as being something that's going to happen it would be easy enough for us to catch that and block that but if someone wants to come along and write a book in my style you know how could i how could i deny them that i mean it, you know that's that's your loss basically if you want to go that route but yeah i've i've never personally had an issue with it i can see why some would but it doesn't necessarily bother me
4: I'm, I'm thinking more, I'm, I'm 52, I don't know how many more years I've got of this in me, but you know, I'm, I'm going to keep going until they, they lock me in a box. Um, but what I'm more concerned with is if my numbers are reasonable enough at that point, you know, I pass away, is my publisher going to say, well, let's keep this going? You know, there, there are plenty of authors right now that are dead. I've, I've personally written yeah. books as VC Andrews, you know, and she's been gone yeah. forever. Um, like I, if they've got the ability to generate these types of titles based on an author that's no longer around and knock them out, you know, within a, a minute or two, which is... Where this stuff is probably heading, um, that—that's the part that scares me, and that's why I'm including language about it in my my contracts. But we'll we'll see where it goes. It's obviously moving very fast.
2: Yeah, that makes sense to me. Well, awesome. So JD, who's up this week? This week we've got Mary Atkins
4: coming on. She's a former lawyer and Yale Law Student graduate turned writing coach. Um, she's with Harper Collins and has a podcast uh, called The First Draft Club. Uh, she's going to offer up a couple of tips to help us all get past that blinking cursor. Here she is, Mary Atkins.
2: <music> Mary, welcome to the show. Thanks. So glad to be here. Yeah. So you're a lawyer turned writing coach and you wrote your first two books while you had very young children, I believe. Is that right?
1: Yes. I wrote, well, my first book I wrote actually before I had um, a baby, but it did come out when he was a few months old. So I did like a book tour with a, Mm -hmm. with With a several month old child. (laughs) (laughs) Which was its own experience. And then my second two books I wrote, um, shortly after that. So one of them I worked on one of them, I actually wrote the first draft of on my maternity leave. Um, because it sold the night that I had my son, actually, I got like, I got the email that the book had sold while I was still in my hospital bed. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> that's a, a big eventful day <laughs> it was a huge eventful day like the most exciting 24 hours you know ever but then I had to write it because it had sold on proposal so I wrote it on a, I was had a full-time job so I wrote it on my maternity leave and then the other one I wrote when he was like two and three yeah two-ish three-ish
2: wow so do you have any tips from all of that and juggling uh, the creative life with parenting and day job responsibilities and all of that? I mean,
1: I guess that so the weirdest takeaway from all of that, I think probably the biggest learning experience in all of that was was the second novel that I I wrote and published, which was during the maternity leave, because my first one I had written over the course of six years and I I wasn't a mom yet. And I, I just looking back, you know, I had the luxury of just a lot of time and I, I didn't because I tutored at night. And so I I really was making writing my priority. So I had hours a day to focus on writing. And because of that, you know, it's like, I think it's called Parkinson's law, that idea that like work spans to fill however much time you give it. For me, it's definitely true with packing. Like if I give myself a week, I will take a full week to pack. If I give myself an hour, I'll manage to pack in an hour, you know? <laughs> so I think that, I, I don't know, maybe that's truly what I learned from this because that novel I wrote, that first novel before I had a kid, I wrote over and over again over the course of years. I mean, I, I'm i sure I devoted thousands and thousands of hours to it. And then the second novel, I just didn't have that luxury. Like I was nursing. I uh, only had a couple hours a day of childcare because that's all we could afford. But also because it was a newborn, like I didn't want to just be gone all day mm-hmm. with a newborn, like a true newborn. I mean, he was like three weeks old. <laughs> so I just had, I, it was like, okay, if I if I'm going to do this, I have to do it in two hours a day. I can't, I don't have more than that. And I still managed to do it. And it's interesting too, because looking back, um, I recently, did a little writing contest for some of the writers I work with where the some of the prizes were annotated copies of my novels. So I had to go back and annotate my novels, all three of my novels. And it was really interesting to go back after a few years and actually read them because I was surprised how much I liked that second one. Like I, in some ways it felt like my my best one. And that was the one that I wrote on my maternity leave in like these 45 minute increments between nursing and being underslept. And so I, I don't know, I guess all of that's to say, I think it's, it's really having a writing career while having a a little kid has been, I think a good lesson in how we don't always know how to produce, like, the assumptions we make about how good writing is produced are often wrong. Mm -hmm. Like you don't have to spend hours and hours a day. You, you don't have to be well slept, (laughs) you know, like some of my best writing is when I'm just like in a stupor on a few hours of sleep. And I, I actually find this liberating, you know, because it's like, you don't always have, you're not going to ever have the perfect conditions. And I guess the point is that, even if you did have the perfect conditions, that wouldn't necessarily make your writing better.
2: No. And, you know, I've heard that from other writers that, you know, when they had a day job, they only had two hours, they were so productive. And then when they've left their day job, they're not really doing any more work than when they had those two hours in the day job. So yeah. Yes,
1: exactly. Yeah. I feel like I've heard the same thing. Yeah. Yeah.
2: Time constraints and pressure are useful sometimes, I guess.
1: I absolutely think so, and it's um. There's one story I have of a writer I've worked with who's. I think it's so inspiring. So she she's a doctor and works in a hospital, and she um had had this. She has two little girls. She's a mom too. So she was reading a lot of like Judy Bloom books and stuff to her kids, and as she was reading these stories that she hadn't thought about in since she was a kid, she. Start like her creative juices started flowing, and she had this idea for a, um, a middle grade novel. And she was like, "I don't have time for this." I'm. It was also during the pandemic, so she's like, mm-hmm. "I don't have time for this between parenting and you know, being a medical professional during a pandemic." Yeah, exactly. Yeah. But she ended up writing it on the notes app of her phone at the hospital, like between patients. Like when she was just taking breaks, she would just like dictate or type into the notes app of her phone, and she wrote the whole novel that way. And I, I just love that story so much. I find it so inspiring because it, to, to me, it's just like, if she can do that, then any of us can do anything Yeah,
2: right? <laughs> in the grocery line on the bus, get your five yeah. minutes and your notes app out. And yeah, yes, that's awesome. So speaking of doing things the right way or not in, mm-hmm. in a writing career early on in your career, you applied to MFA programs twice and got accepted. Yes
1: but you didn't enroll. (laughs) Right.
2: So I'd love to get your perspective on how a creative writing MFA relates to publishing, what an MFA will and won't get you and any other insights about that journey you might
1: have. Oh, great. I love to talk about, you'll have to shut me up. I could talk all day about this. (laughs) I actually applied three times and the first time I didn't get in anywhere. Um, and the second two times I did, And both times just ended up deciding not to go. And I think that was ultimately the right decision. Um, It's really interesting. I, I, I get writers ask me a lot if they if I think they should get an MFA. And I obviously have my own perspective on it. But I've also interviewed some of my friends who have MFA's and have gone on to publish because I really was curious what how they feel about it and if it helped them. And basically what they told me kind of confirmed my decision not to go because essentially they, they all said, look, like it really helps me focus on writing and take, take writing seriously and commit to it for a couple of years. And that was the main good thing. And like, and to have a community, but like, could you get those things outside of an MFA? Yes. But then my other friend made the point, like, he's like, but do many people get that outside of an MFA? Probably not. So like, it is, I mean, it it has value in that sense, for sure. That is what kind of the general feeling I was getting from them. But I think the reason I, the reason I wanted to go, I don't think was the right reason. And that's why I'm glad I didn't go. Because the reason I wanted to go was because it was hard, like the amorphous goal of writing a publishable book was really hard for me the in the same way it's hard for everyone like the uncertainty the not knowing what makes it good the getting a million different types of feedback and not knowing who to listen to and what to incorporate the like it was just it's so hard to navigate and not to mention the publishing part where you have to find a literary agent Mm -hmm. if you want to traditionally publish and you have to deal with so much rejection and like with school I mean as you said, as you know, like I went to law school, I mean, I, I, I always enjoyed school and I felt like I learned how to do well as a student. Like I, I could excel inside the closed world of a classroom. I could make my way to an A most of the time. Like I could figure out what the professor needed from me study and then make that happen. Not all the time, but most of the time I could make my way to an A or at least a B. (laughs) Yeah. Um, and that sounded so much more manageable, like a couple of years where I just get to get grades again. And like someone just like getting an A in a creative writing class sounded so that was such a clear goal, right? Like that would be just something I could, like, I figured I could do that. Whereas like writing a book that a publisher wanted to publish and put into the world felt way, not only harder, but just I didn't even know what I didn't know. Like, I didn't even know yeah. what to, it was uncharted. Right. There's not like a do, do a, then B, then C, then it'll happen. Like I I w I didn't have that kind of clear cut path. So I think intuitively, I I kind of knew that both times when I got in, because it was like, really, it was a feeling that I went with when I decided not to go, because the feeling was like, Mary, this isn't. You're not doing this for the right reasons. And like, if it had been free, I think I definitely would have gone anyway. (laughs) (laughs) But in my case, both were programs where I was going to go. I already had a lot of debt from law school, and I was going to go into way more debt to go back and get a master's. So that that really helped me to make the call of like, really, is this is this really going to be worth going into another fifty thousand dollars worth of debt or something? And And it was like, "Mm, no, I don't think so.
2: I think that's really interesting. Like, I've never thought about it that way. As you know, being a writer is tough because you're right. It's amorphous. You don't know what the goals are, what the tasks are you need to do to succeed. And you just get rejection after rejection. And it's like, is that third party validation? That's what we want. So, you know, you're like, oh, yeah, I get an A and Mm -hmm. I'm validated that I'm a good writer. But that's really interesting to me. Um, Yeah. But yeah, you could get the information other ways. And I know because way back early in my career, I had a friend that did the MFA. I'm like, just give me your syllabus. Give me your notes. And, you know, I got all those books and I just did what he did. And I was like, oh, that's cool. Do an MFA for free. Um, That's so smart. Oh, it was great. I was like, why don't you come teach me? Because you'll learn it better. And we met in the Southfield Library in Michigan, and he taught me his MFA. Hi, Joe, if you're listening, but yeah, it was
1: fabulous. <laughs> Thanks, Joe. That's amazing. I love that story. And uh, yeah, I, I'm,
2: you know, I've never thought about that. And, and does the MFA get you things like agents or a publishing deal? Maybe, maybe if you're in certain programs, but yeah, yeah. that's really fascinating. I appreciate you sharing that. That kind of changed my perspective on MFAs a little bit.
1: Cool. I'm glad to hear that. Yeah, I I didn't realize that until I started reflecting on it more recently, like looking back on that. Mm-hmm. It's funny too when you said that I also remembered. I forgot I did this. In law school I did something kind of similar. I went to the, you know, they, there's always the student bookstore where they have all the books for all of the courses, like in one section of the bookstore, right, for college and and graduate programs. So I went to the section. I was in law school getting my law books, but while I was there I was like I'm going to go see what the MFA students are reading. So I went over to that section and just bought those books. Yeah, it's Essentially what you did. And one of them was the art of fiction by John Gardner, which is like, have you read yes, that? Of course it's I have. It was so on the syllabus. <laughs> right. It's so good. I feel like it, like, I was like, oh my gosh, this is if this is what they're doing in an MFA program, maybe it is worth it because that book was so good.
2: It was so good. Yeah. So that that's fantastic. I love that. So I want to ask a little bit about what you're currently doing because you've changed what you're writing a little bit. You're writing your first memoir. Is that right? Yeah. I'm working on memoir now. Oh, my gosh. Can you tell me a bit about that and how it's been the same or different from your other nonfiction and fiction works?
1: Yeah, it's been so different and really fun, but challenging. So the memoir is called Fertile and it's about um, pregnancy loss and recurrent pregnancy loss and how several miscarriages over the course of one year really forced me to redefine my life, like what I cared about, how I was living, what I valued. Um, It was a really transformative experience going through those losses even how I define life, all of, all of that completely shifted. It like kind of turned my world inside out. So I had never actually, in terms of memoir, I feel like, um, you know, I, I loved writing personal essays. I've published some personal essays before. So I've had essay ideas before in the past, but, I'd never had like one big kind of cohesive life transformative experience that felt like it could justify an entire memoir until, until this experience. And I think not only did it it kind of pulled me toward memoir because it was so transformative, but also when I had my first miscarriage, I was looking for memoirs about it because I really didn't want to feel alone and I couldn't believe how little I found. Mm-hmm. And, it was so lonely, and like between the miscarriage taboo, where people just aren't talking about it. I mean, when I had my first miscarriage, I thought I didn't know anyone who had had one. Like that's how bad the taboo is. And then of course I started finding all all these people. They're like, I had one. I had one. They just had never told me, and I was like, oh, I'm not alone. But I just I really thought I was because no one talks about it, and which also I think translates to the publishing because no one. I mean, there, there, I found a couple, there are a few people, you know, but like, I think, I think publishing just hasn't, I don't know. I've even heard recently from a few publishers who are, who say, um, fertility is a hard sell. So they're like, um, there's this idea in publishing that women don't want to read about fertility. But I just, I actually think that's wrong. I mean, at least as a reader, I definitely did. And I think, yeah. I really think there are women who must be in the same boat of not wanting to feel alone in that and wanting to read someone's story. Anyway, long-winded answer. Of yeah, saying yes, well, it's,
2: it's a, a traumatic topic, right? So people don't tell you yeah. because sometimes it's hard to express traumatic events. Yeah. Um, yeah. And writing about that,
1: how do you write about
2: trauma without re-traumatizing yourself? Yes,
1: it's, so I, I'm almost embarrassed at how ignorant I was about that going into this, um, because I had not done that before. I had not written about trauma before. And so I thought, Oh, it'll be great. (laughs) It'll be cathartic. (laughs) And it was in some ways, but in others. And luckily I was working with like a really, um, a trauma informed memoir coach who was like, this is going to be hard. Like, let's talk about ways that you're going to deal with with resurfacing this trauma when it comes up and i just feel very lucky that that's who I ended up working with because, um, because it did, you know, there were the, there were physical manifestations of writing about trauma that I didn't expect. I would shake, I would shake while I was writing, you know, and, um, I would have to just take long walks or like go outside. A lot of it was in the summer has been in the summer when I was writing and like just being in the heat really helped too. But noticing ways that I could kind of take care of my body when all of that was coming back was important. But yeah, I think it's, it's so true. And I really didn't, because I wasn't um, personally like experienced in memoir, I didn't, I didn't know how how big a part of writing about trauma that was going to be.
2: Yeah. I think that's a good tip. I know the couple of times when I've um, tried to do that from real experience, it's either I can't get into it it stays too shallow or it's like, mm. I just, I can't do this because it's too much. So yeah. yeah, I guess working with someone like a writing coach or someone who has experienced with trauma when you're going through that and things resurface. Yeah. Pretty helpful.
1: Yeah. It was really helpful. Um, because it was almost like therapy too. I mean, it would be like she'd be like, How are you feeling writing about this again? So that you I could vent like this is how I'm feeling now versus how I was feeling then. And and um so like having that meta kind of reflection on the experience was really helpful.
2: Yeah. So if you're gonna write about trauma, make sure you have some good support, I guess, is so, the takeaway. Yeah, yeah, yeah. absolutely. So, okay. After that, we should go lighter. Yeah. (laughs) Tell me about, uh, your five rules you should be breaking for writing.
1: Mm -hmm. Oh my gosh. I have so many more than five. (laughs) (laughs) Um, okay. So my favorite one to tell, uh, that I think people need to 100%. Okay. There's so many. So let me start with, let me start with show. Don't tell. Right. Everyone's heard that one. Yeah. Everyone's heard yeah. that one. And it's just not true. Right? Actually, I think John Gardner might even talk about this in his book. But or no, I think it's um, have you read The Making of Story by Alice LePlant? No, that was I also haven't on, on the one. syllabus. No. That was also on the syllabus I stole. <laughs> <laughs> and it was, she has this part, it's really good. Um, but she has this chapter in there on how great authors show and tell like every author yeah. really shows and tells it's not show. Don't tell like there's a lot of telling because you can't show everything. I mean, if you showed everything, it would be like a movie. It would be a screenplay, right? Mm-hmm. It'd be like we would just be inferring what was going on in the character's heads. But in so the beauty of prose is we can get in their heads and we can tell the reader what's going on in their head. Like yeah. sharing their thought is a form of telling, and I, that was revolutionary to me. I loved reading that. So, um, so I really, Alice LaPlante is her name. If anyone wants to check out that book, but that, that presentation of how it's not show, don't tell it's show and tell. And the challenge is just to figure out when to show and when to tell was so liberating for me. I yeah. love that one. Another one is don't write, um, is that a writer writes every day? Oh, I hate that one. That one tormented me for years. And then I heard Cheryl, Cheryl Strayed being interviewed on a podcast where she was asked about that. They're like, you know, they say a writer writes every day. Do you write every day? And she said, like, God, no, she's like, I, she called herself a binge writer. She says like, when she has an idea, she's really excited about something. She's like, I just write obsessively. So yes, every day, probably. And she's like, but then. When I'm not or when I finish the draft, she said, there are months and months go by where I'm not writing. And like she's still a writer, you know? So that just really liberated me After that, yeah. I stopped thinking I needed to write every single day, even if I wasn't inspired or working on something. Yeah, yeah, I like that one. That's a great one um, yeah okay, Let's see what's another one. Um, i I'm personally not a fan of the belief that every first draft is crap. I never liked that. I know it's like, um, I mean, Anne Lamott is one of the people credited with saying that. And like a lot of people I think have drawn a lot of um, motivation and like comfort from that. And that's, that's great. Like, I'm like, think whatever works for you. Great. But for me, that was never motivating because I would think, well, if I'm just going to write a bad first draft, like, Why am I writing it? Like, tell me how to skip to the good to the part where I write a good first draft. How do I do that? You know? And so now I like to like when I work with writers, I I really like to show them my first drafts so that they can see, like, look, is it a mess? Of course. Like it's a total mess. Are there, are there parts that got cut and never came back? Definitely. Like full characters, full plot lines. But like look at the fact that like the first two paragraphs of my first draft are the first two paragraphs of the published book, right. (laughs) Or like (laughs) how this particular scene barely changed at all. Like there are these, there are these pieces of the first draft that will carry through to the very end. And like, they're, they're the, they're like the heart of the story and that's where it's living. And I love thinking of it that way. Like, You're laying the groundwork, but like a lot of the pieces of that groundwork are still going to be there. Yeah. And that's cool to me because it feels like, listen, I can always change everything later. So it's not like it doesn't have to be high pressure, but I'm not, I'm not wait completely. Not even wasting my time is what I was going to say, but I'm not completely writing something that's going to be ditched. Not all of this will be ditched. And that feels good. To me. Yeah.
2: And I think that speaks to you to different writers having different processes. I know there are some writers who only write one draft where they just loop back and over and over mm. and over. I think Dean Koontz is one who's a one draft into really the editor. Right? Interesting. So he just goes from the back, will write, but just keep looping back and editing and editing as he goes. or some people will just
1: word vomit and then shape, right? So I don't think there's really yeah, any right process. Yeah, totally agree. It's really interesting too. I love hearing stuff like that. And that did not know about Dean Koontz. I heard, um, Curtis Sittenfeld once say that she, she essentially like, she writes such a robust outline mm-hmm. that she just start keeps filling it in and filling it in and filling it in. And then it's the book. And I was like, that is so cool. Like, yeah. like it's not a linear, thing. She's just like the outline becomes the draft. Yeah.
2: I think that's the James Patterson method too. So it just goes to show you, there's like no right way. Yeah. The first draft can be bad or it can be great or whatever. Somewhere in between. Right. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Totally. Yeah. Yeah. Amen. Awesome.
2: Okay. Those are great tips. Um, I do want to ask a little more about your podcast. You do the first draft club podcast.
1: What can listeners expect to hear over there? So there I share writing tips. It's just me. Um, at least so far, I haven't brought in any guests or anything yet. But the the podcast is me sharing like writing tips and strategies that I've gleaned from my writing career over the years. And there is short and sweet. These are sort of like 10 to 15 minute episodes that are all pretty. It's kind of like we get in and out. Um, but yeah, it's called The First Draft Club. So they can, they can find Great. it where they listen to podcasts.
2: So if you want more writing tips, you can go listen to that. And you also have a 12 month book incubator program.
1: Yes. that's yeah. the, So that's how I work with writers. That's the only way I do. It's called the book incubator and it's a 12 month program where I walk them through writing their, their book draft, mainly novelists are in the program, but we do have a few people working on memoir as well. Um, writing the draft, revising it, and then pitching it if they want to traditionally publish. yeah, and I'm actually um slowly adding a self-publishing track too, because more and more people are doing that, and it's becoming such a such a like attractive option, you know? And um, so I've been just i I haven't done that before, so I've been hesitant to, like really say that i, I I'm not an expert in that. But I am gathering expertise in that. <laughs>
2: Perfect. And so, yeah, that's a whole process. Pitching query letters. Yes. Learning how to write a good query letter is a skill that is, is difficult. Um, that could be a whole podcast episode. It really could. Itself.
1: It really could.
2: Do you have a, a top tip for writing a good query letter?
1: Um, I think the key, uh, short, shorter, shorter is better. Yeah. Maybe that's yeah. The, the most short. important thing is probably that because I think. I was trying to think of like what the most common mistake I see is. And I think it's law, it's people like writing four paragraphs about their book or something. And it's like, you, you actually don't want to do that in the query letter unless they ask you to, you really want it to just be one paragraph about the book.
2: Yeah. That's a great tip. And as we wrap up, I have one final question. If you could offer one piece of advice to new and inspiring authors, what
1: would it be? I love this question. Um, I think this circles back to what we talked about at the beginning. You don't have to have hours a day. Like you can do it in, you could do it in like just 15 minute pockets here and there. And not only can you do that, you can do it over the course of a few months. You can get a draft done. Like it's, it's not going to take you a year. Um, even if you're doing it in little pockets, I mean, John, I, I love the John Grisham story of how he was a working lawyer and he would just like write. Um, I think it was a time to kill. Was it like in these little, you know, in breaks during court, he would write, he wrote his whole novel that way. And I, you know, I told the story about the doctor that I worked with who did it between patients. So mm-hmm. if you have that burning book, don't, don't think you have to wait until, you know, Oh, until I like the kids leave for college, you know, or like, or I have months to devote all this time. Like, You can probably work it into your life now without changing that much.
2: Yeah. So do tasks take as long as you've blocked them out? I want to (laughs) know.
4: Like, that's one of the first things that I wrote down and like, I actually texted it to my wife. I was like, this is so true because, you know, like I'm, I'm, I I schedule everything. Like I've got, you know, my calendar is always in front of me. I block out time for every little thing. Um, and you know, she, she's right. You know, if I allow myself two days to do something, it's going to take me two days to do it. If I allow myself two hours, I'll probably knock it out in those two hours. Um, so yeah, that, that's huge.
2: Yeah. I do think that I work faster when I have time constraints. I'm not sure that that's healthy or sustainable, but I think it is true because I'll do that, but then I'll burn out and watch Netflix for three days. You know,
3: (laughs) that's one of those things you should be doing just occasionally, like, you know, Mm -hmm. like running, like doing sprints or something, you know, that, that's something you should have a pace. You should have a steady pace at which you write, but then occasionally push yourself. I mean, that's, I did crazy stuff early in my career. I have a 60,000 word uh, fictional story I wrote in one day uh, that is that's become infamous. Um, That's not anything I'm ever going to do again. But because I did crap like that, I may I reset my limits and it uh, gave me the insight that I can do this. So I think an occasional push like that is good.
4: Let me ask you a question. So 60,000 words in a day, that's, that's huge, first of all, but are, were they all good words or did you kind of like, you know, after a certain while you'd lose your steam and you just kind of kept going? Like if, if that were to be a publishable, publishable thing, how much
3: of it do you think could be salvaged at this point? How much would have to be rewritten? So I, I did publish that. I didn't publish it like raw. I mean, I spent like, you know, a month and a half rewriting and editing a surprising number of uh, words that I wrote were actually I thought quite good, uh, better than I was anticipating. Uh, in fact, I had fewer typos than I normally have. And I think what happened was I sort of engaged a different part of, of my writer brain. It's a very different book from anything else I've, I've written. Um, but yeah, I think the, you don't want, you're, you're going to get, um, varying results when you do things like that. And some of what you write isn't always going to be publishable, but that's what rewrites for. So, uh, yeah, I made the book better on edit basically. I,
4: for me personally, I, I'm good for maybe two to three thousand words a day. And and like yeah. I, I can go higher than that. But the next day, usually when I sit down, like anything above that number usually gets cut. It's like it, it starts going from this is the greatest writing ever, you know, in, in my head anyway, to this yeah. is complete garbage by the, you know, if I hit five thousand words, so like there's always that that sweet spot. Um, and you know, like I wrote The Fourth Monkey while I still had a day job. And, you know, that was one of those books where I was cramming it out, you know, at, at my lunch hour in the car when I was at a red light, you know, any place. I could find a couple minutes worth of time. Um, And I've worked with enough mentoring students and enough um, book doctor projects where I've learned that like the people, when they do that, like they tend to churn out gold in those couple of seconds that they actually have available to them. Um, A lot of times more so than when they have, you know, a full eight hours of writing time every day, it's being forced to have to knock it out quickly, um, tends to bring quality sometimes. Yes, I agree with that.
5: And there was, that was one thing in the interview as well was just like your state of mind, like. I think it was – you didn't have to necessarily be fully caffeinated and ready to go. Like you could be exhausted and think that the word is garbage that you've written, but coming back to it, it it turned out to be better than she thought it was. And I think that uh, that's one of those barriers that a lot of people put up is that they have to be in this certain state
4: of mind. Well, I've seen a lot of people psych themselves out with that you know, like I, I, I didn't get eight hours. so I'm just not going to write today. I haven't had coffee and I'm just not going to write today. I had to deal with this today. So I don't, you know, I'm not in the right frame of mind, whatever. Like it, it becomes an excuse rather than
3: the, you know, a tool. Do you think, um, cause there was a, a, a point at which she said something about you know, her, the rules that she would recommend you break. And one of those was writing daily. And, uh, I, I, I come from the school of you should write every day, like you, even if you're not doing productive writing, even if what you're doing is just, you know, I use everything to hone my craft. If I write an email, if I write a text message or a tweet, I try to do the best job I can do. Tell the story within the confines of that. Right. I have this that philosophy. Uh, but what about I don't know if everyone here shares that.
2: Well, I have a question about that because I I did have that philosophy until I started indie publishing and realized that there are some days I just can't do the marketing and the writing in the same day or I just like explode. So sometimes I'll alternate days. So do you have days where you just devote it to something other than writing or do you get your writing in every single day?
3: I don't don't have days that I devote to something other than writing. the writing is always a part of everything I do. Uh, so I also I design my own covers. So that's a, a release that's different from the writing, but I still write something. And I, I typically aim for at least 2000 words a day. Um, but I, what I'll do is on a, a slow day or hard day, if I can get 500 words out, and that's all I can manage, I'm, I'm forgiving of myself. Um, I, I still try to meet deadlines and I still try, you know, everything gets done, but I don't, I don't come down on myself very hard. Pardon me. Uh, if I, um, if I don't hit 2000 words, I'm not that harsh on myself anymore. Used to be.
5: I think that the writing everyday concept can be a, another barrier for certain people. Um, and you know, I think that there are many, Qualifications as to why someone may not be able to write every day. It could be chronic conditions. It could be family situations, anything like that. And I think that um, I agree that having that in the air that an author must write every day uh, becomes this idea that, well, then I'm not a writer because I can't do this every day. And I think that that's where the the barrier exists that just shouldn't exist i think that anyone is considered a writer if they're able to get words down and i think that the goal of writing every day is always a positive one uh if someone is capable of doing that
4: i've, I've personally found that writing is very similar to going to the gym and exercising if you do it every day you can do a little bit more so you can lift a little bit more weight uh every day so for me personally i, I write six days a week i take sundays off and just spend the time with family because i do need a break um but at the same time, if I push myself too hard, um, I, I feel like I, I burn out, you know, so I can have those 6,000, 7,000 word days if I really, really try. Uh, but the next day when I sit down at that computer, I'm exhausted. I'm staring at a blank screen and it takes me a while to get into that that frame of mind. Um, one of the tricks that I had learned early on, and I don't know if I've shared it on this, this podcast before, but um, somebody had told me that they always stop mid-thought in their writing. So they yeah. know what's coming mm-hmm. next. So that the sentence that they just wrote, they don't finish that sentence or whatever. Um, but you always know what's coming next. Don't write until the well is dry because that's where you start running into, you know, essentially writer's block. Uh, but if you know what's coming next, you're going to feel a lot more comfortable, you know, in that time frame, you know, from when you get up to when you sit back down again. And I think that that helps quite a bit, too.
3: I think that was Hemingway who originally did some um, apocryphal story about Hemingway doing that. I remember. And so that's, that's the idea of stacking the odds in your favor too, which is something when I, when I do talk to authors about this stuff, it, 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 that's something I tell them to do is that's why it's important to have that routine like, you know, John Grisham says that, you know, he, he goes out to his uh, writing shed. He's got the same computer, the same cup of coffee, this, you know, everything's the same, no internet, that's his routine. And he knows when he sits down that's writing time. And that's what he does. He's not surfing the web or, or posting on Twitter or any of that. Uh, establishing that's tough for some people as well, but you know, Stephen King, an infamous story from uh, on writing is, you know, he would write in like the utility closet in the trailer home that he and his wife lived in. Uh, so you, you can find it. Uh, you can find that writing time, you know, Michael LaRon writes, on, I don't know if he still does this, but he would write while on the train, and he'd use his iPhone and his thumbs. Uh, and if he can do that, you can write from anywhere, anytime.
2: Yeah.
4: Yeah, Steve, Stephen King, when he was coming up, he, he put a big addition on his house up in Bangor and built himself this huge office. Um, bought a monster desk and set it in the middle of the room and and sat down. And I, I think it lasted like maybe a day or so before he you yeah. know got the small desk and shoved it in the corner. So he was staring at a wall. Um, so, yeah, that, that that's huge. What do you guys think about MFA programs? Does anybody here have an M- MFA d- degree? Oh, you
2: heard my experience. I just copied someone else's yeah. MFA. <laughs> I was like, please come and teach I me. I love that, your by the way. <laughs> <laughs> mm-hmm. that's,
0: that's
4: much easier on the student loans, for yeah. sure. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Um, yeah, I've honestly, I've steered clear of them mainly because like, I honestly, I don't know why my writing works. I don't know why people like it. And I don't know that I want to fool with whatever it is that is working. I'm afraid that if I were to try an MFA program, somebody would tell me to do something differently. It would tweak it and and it might mess with that, you know, magic formula and take me off in yeah. a direction. Um, so I, I, I don't know. I mean, I, I think the writer gene is just something you, you're either born with or you, you pick up on. If you read a ton of books, you know, story structure and everything they're going to teach you in class is going to, it's going to be in your head and your your subconscious, and you're going to know how to put a story down on paper. Um, I've, I've always felt that. I don't know. It's something you can really learn in a classroom.
3: That's, um, I mean, what's, what are the two things that they're going to make you do in an MFA program anyway is read and write. Um, so if you're just already doing that. And what I liked uh, from the interview, was she said that one of the things she was kind of after was the community. Um, mm-hmm. Now, we don't, you don't need to to invest thousands of dollars uh, to be a part of a writing community. Uh, There's a ton of them out there. If you're able to go to any of these conferences or anything, but Facebook groups and things like that. Um, But I do see that as a big benefit. But I loved that, you know, Christine, you were the one I think that started this conversation about, because I'm a big fan of things like Barkon uh, where, you know, I can't afford to go to this writer's conference, but I can hang out in the bar where in the hotel where it is. Uh, I'm a big fan of like, you know, finding the syllabus and getting all the books and, you know, kind of owning your education. That's, that's, that was great.
2: Yeah. The one thing that I found that was really interesting going through that, cause I did, I just got the syllabus and he actually came to the library. I think I said it was a Southfield library. It might've been the Bloomfield or West Bloomfield library in my memory. That's a while ago, but, um, We did it every week for like 12 weeks. Um, but the thing that was interesting was that I, I learned later they didn't teach structure, so like three act structure, those type of things was not something that was in the MFA syllabus. That was something I learned after from reading on my own,
4: which makes no sense. Yeah, <laughs> because I mean if you're gonna teach anything like that, that, that should be it. Like I, I I've read enough in my life where like if I'm reading a manuscript from somebody, I'm I can tell them okay we need a twist here. This needs to happen here. Like it just if, it feels you know like if it's a movie this is supposed to happen. But like I just know that it. But it's it's only just from absorbing the material, you know over years and years and years. Um, yeah, if somebody's walking in dry and they're not teaching that, then you you're already coming out of the gate with a problem.
3: am I ta- I don't even know uh, if you guys I'm a full on pantser. I don't know if you guys are pantsers or outliners.
4: I've gone the full gambit, um, which we've talked about extensively on the air. I was a, a, a pantser for sure for the first couple of books. But then after working with Patterson, like I'm actually the first and I think the only guy to get James Patterson to write a book without an outline. Um, yeah. And, you know, after we did that, he said, OK, that was fun. Now let's try it my way so you can see how much more efficient it is. Um, and he handed <laughs> me an outline and he was right. You know, like we ended up blowing through the book. There were very few changes. Um, you know, he basically had everything other than the ending. And we rewrote, rewrote that ending five or six times. But that was mainly because because uh, there was already a, a production company and a studio involved and we had to make sure everybody was happy um, but I mean he you know normally if I pants a novel there's 30 to 50 thousand words on the cutting room floor by the time I'm done because I have to feel everything out um, with an outline it's it's you know more like the the Dean Koons method which you, you talked about I, I review what I wrote the previous day I, I polish it um, and then I move on with the new writing and by the time I get to the end of the book I, I really I'm done I don't have a second draft I, I don't need to um, and that, that's becoming more efficient as I, I dig deeper into the outlining process for me and everybody is, is so different mm-hmm. what
2: about you guys well we've talked about before I was a hardcore outliner I tried to move more to the middle to be a hybrid you know looser outliner so that I had more room to pants and because I write serial fiction that's kind of necessary you kind of have to be a little bit more of a hybrid mm-hmm. writer but for the novels I've moved back to the outlining it just works better for me
5: yeah, I would say the same, especially because I work with co-authors, so we kind of need to know where the direction of the story is going. But my own personal series or serial is ninety uh, percent pantsed, so uh, it's been an experience, but uh, I've enjoyed it. So,
3: you know, when if you were a jazz musician, someone would come along with like the the core tune, and then you might improvise between the notes. And I'm starting to see that as, as an advantage. You know, I, I I've, I've, I've got an outline I'm working on and I'm, there's others I'm going to work on. I'm no good at it yet. So I am looking to learn that skill, but, uh, I can see the advantage having done some co-authored stuff. I can now see the advantage of having an outline. I'm not against it.
4: <laughs> All right. I wanted to wrap this up with the query letter thing, because I, I, get a lot of questions about this. Um, One of the things that I see people do regularly that is a big no-no, they jump on Google and they, you know, type in, perfect query letter, something along those lines. And it gives them that that particular formula that we see over and over again. And it just tells you where to put your text. Don't do that, because you need to think about this from the agent standpoint. And I've talked to my agent about this extensively. When she walks in on a, like a Monday morning, she's got 400 to 1,000 emails in her inbox. And they're all in that same format. And she's quickly, you know, think about yourself in the corporate world. If you work in that world going through your Monday morning inbox, you know, she starts to read it, hits delete, hits delete, hits delete. Before she knows it, she deleting stuff before she even reads it. Um, So it just, that doesn't work. You need to catch people's attention. Um, To give uh, just a quick example, I, I had somebody who sent me their query letter. I helped him rewrite it after he told me that he worked security and he changed the first line of his query letter to read, I carry a gun in New York. like that is a showstopper because if you're going through your inbox and you run into that in the first line of that email, you're going to stop to see what the rest is about. Um, so personally, when I work with authors on query letters, I try to find some little tidbit, something like that, that's going to cause whoever's reading it to pause and say, huh, and, and keep going. So just wanted to throw that out there.
2: Yeah, I definitely think that first line is so important to catch attention. And, and like Mary said, keep it short because they have to be skimmable. Agents don't have a lot of time. You know, you got to catch attention quickly and then let your writing speak for itself.
3: This is that, this is copywriting 101 by the way which was for for decades was my full-time career uh, and I, I still do all the marketing stuff for D2D and everything so yeah you, you're you're basically study copywriting I mean if you if you can uh, master the art of of great copywriting, uh, great persuasive writing, you know they they teach you all those things, how to open an email, you know how to how to basically force someone to open an email. Uh, Those those tricks work on the human beings who are also um, agents. I mean, you're just writing for the same. You're writing for a specific audience, just like you would as a as a professional copywriter. So it's a good skill to cultivate.
2: So you should put an emoji in your subject line. huh? Is that like put emojis, (laughs) (laughs) uh, misspell everything.
5: (laughs) Maybe don't use A.I. for this one.
3: If you're going to use A.I., And this is the last thing I'll say about AI in this, this particular show. If you're going to use AI, don't trust AI, use, Mm -hmm. use AI, uh, to give you some, some roots, uh, some foundation, but you know, apply skill to it. It, it, If it, it would be ridiculous to just hand over something that chat GPT spit out in 60 seconds, you know, I mean, spend the time to go through and ask yourself the questions that matter. Does this make sense? Does it do what I need it to do? You know, is it, is it going to get me further along? And uh, if you can kind of finesse all the words in that way, there's nothing wrong with using chat GPT or something else to generate a first draft, but that's what it should be as a first draft, not your final draft.
2: Yeah, I agree. Awesome. Great. Great conversation. So JD, who's up next week?
4: Next week, that's, we're going to have some fun. We've got C.J. Tudor coming on. Uh, she's a best-selling author of The Chalkman, uh, numerous other novels. Her latest one is called The Drift, and it releases January 31st.
2: Great. If you'd like to be notified as soon as new episodes publish, make sure you go to writersincpodcast.com and sign up now. We'll see you next week, and have a great week of writing.
0: Thanks for listening to this episode of Writers Inc. Access the show notes and leave a comment at writersincpodcast.com.